Hey, it's Ricky Gantz back with another episode of G220 Radio. Tonight, we're going to be talking about Marian Dogma. What does that mean when we talk about Marian Dogma? Well, tonight in that, discussing Marian Dogma, we're going to be talking about the perpetual virginity of Mary. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight on G220 Radio. Hey, it's Ricky Gantz along with Mike Miller, and this is G220 Radio. We are back again for another episode. I believe this is episode number 528, 528 episodes, G220 Radio. Mike, how we doing? Doing pretty good. Got a little break last week, going to T4G, enjoyed every minute of it. Saw some friends from England I haven't seen in 13 years. Nice. Uh, family that I was close to in the chapel, so that was exciting. Probably a highlight of the trip amongst all the good preaching. Mm-hmm. Now, were these friends that live in England, or were they stationed there as you was over there for the Air Force? <clears throat> they were stationed there. They now live okay. in Las Vegas, so they're oh, okay. Um, he's an elder of a church, and so I don't know if all of them, but some of them, I think all of them came. And yeah. so they're all kind of enjoying kind of like getting together as elders, listening to some good preaching. What are some of maybe the highlights you can touch on briefly here and that maybe if someone is able to go and listen to some of those uh, messages from the T4G, you would say, hey, check this out because this this was good. So, yeah. So you want to check out Christian is his name. He's a Kenyan pastor. Let me see if I can get his his full name. And uh, he was phenomenal. And he's only the second best preacher in Kenya. Mm. And so uh, it was just a very, they might even look like they already have it up. Let's see if I can. Um, Christian Lawanda is his name. It was phenomenal. It was, it was great. Um, and then you have, I mean, Shailen preached. At one point I was waiting for Matt Merker, who was leading music to come up and start dropping a beat, man. That was that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Well, that, so. that's great, man. I'm, I'm glad you got to enjoy that uh, conference to go and hear that as they come and bring this before. This is a pastor's conference, right? Am, am I correct? Primarily, yeah. Primarily. And so you, you, you have preachers coming, pastors coming to be edified, to be built up in the faith so that they mm-hmm. can then take that back into their own congregations uh, with the things that we're dealing with in this world, as well as proclaiming the truth to them and building them up and edifying them as they go seek to edify their own congregation. So I'm glad you was able to do that on your birthday. Happy belated birthday uh, for that. So that was great that you got to enjoy that then. Um, And next week uh, we will be back here on G220 radio. And before that though, no, no, not, not before that, not before that. I was going to say next week, we will have already seen each other, but it'll be after next week's show yeah. because we're heading down to Kentucky and hopefully Lord willing, we'll be able to get together while we're down there visiting some family and uh, that'll be a good time then. So uh, hopefully maybe we can do something live, man, we'll meet at a coffee shop and do some real maybe. live G220 possibly. We'll see how it works out. Depending I mean, on the I'd have to, I have to get another microphone and possibly another mic stand or a mic stand, but yeah. 
Yeah, that would be great. All right, so we're going to talk about Marion Dogma tonight. We've had Steve Christie on the program before. So as you're getting ready, as we're about to bring him on, go share, like this this episode. Let other people know about it. We're going to get into Marion Dogma, dealing with the perpetual virginity of Mary. And we've had Steve Christie on the program once before, and we want to welcome him back again. Steve, welcome back to G220 Radio. Oh, thanks a whole lot, Ricky, for having me back on. It, it feels great. And Mike, it's good to see you again. And I uh, don't know if I mentioned this before to you, but uh, I wanted to thank you for uh, serving our country in the Air Force, uh, something I never did. So whenever I uh, see somebody that has served our country, I greatly appreciate it. You were defending our country while I was here working. <laughs> yeah, uh, the family I met, he looked at me, he's like, like doing the beard because i mean i got grown out a little bit and i was like you have you have a goatee like let's let's just admit it you get out of the military you get facial hair like that's just how it works i i I know a lot a lot of my friends that are especially that are of the reformed faith i'm noticing most of them have got facial hair so i feel a bit naked on here but uh part, part of the reason is because the last time that i tried to grow out my facial hair um, I noticed that there was more salt than pepper in it. So a lot more <laughs> salt than pepper in it. So um, I'm, I'm doing the clean shave look here. Nice, nice. Well, Steve, we've had you on before. And the last time we had you on, we were talking about the Old Testament canon. We talked about the uh, Apocrypha. And now we, and, and after that show, we had talked about having you come back on, uh, talk about Marian Dogmas. Uh, mainly the perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, and you just recently had a debate on Marian dogma. Um, and so before we get into this, is there anything that you would like to say about a debate you just had where people can go and look at that and, and hear some more on that as you debated Trent Horn? Right. Um, I, like you said, I just had a debate last Wednesday against Trent Horn from Catholic Answers, and we debated the subject of the perpetual virginity of Mary, her immaculate conception, and the bodily assumption. And it was specifically whether or not scripture contradicted these three Marian dogmas. And for those that don't know what a dogma is, in the Roman Catholic Church, it is something that is binding. It's something that um, a person or a Catholic must believe in. And all three of these dogmas have something called an anathema attached to it, which means if you reject it or speak out against it, you're excommunicated. And even the the, um, people aren't usually aware of the perpetual virginity of Mary, Um, this anathema comes from something called the Lateran Council in 649. So it goes all the way back to the seventh century, but it was not an ecumenical council. And the reason why this is significant is because um, non-ecumenical or uh, local councils that are not universally binding um, don't carry as much weight as an ecumenical or universal council. And it was convened by Pope Martin I, and it states, quote, if anyone does not, according to the Holy Fathers, confess truly and properly that Holy Mary ever virgin, her virginity remain equally inviolate after the birth, let him be anathema or, or excommunicated. And so it's not something that is optional or just fitting for a Catholic belief, uh, uh, Catholic to believe, but it is a permanently binding. Um, but again, it wasn't an ecumenical council. Now, the first ecumenical council that actually affirmed this 
was the fifth ecumenical council in the sixth century. But even then, it's using the term ever virgin simply to say that Mary was a virgin up to that point. She had always been a virgin. And so the term ever virgin is a term that's used by a lot of Catholic apologists to say that she was a virgin her entire life. But if we go back very early, such as um, Hippolytus, who was trained by the early church father Irenaeus in the second uh, um second century it, the term ever virgins simply was used that way that she had been a virgin her whole life up to that point but then over time the term meant that she was a virgin her entire life so, uh, so you know I, I think that's that's very not to interrupt you but i think that's very important because this is something mike and i have talked about uh, on other episodes of g220 radio sometimes when people read the early church fathers there's a lot of movements going on today of the deconstruction of the christian faith and people want to go back and read pre-nicaea church fathers and say oh you know this didn't happen until the nicene creed and 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 to the council of nicaea and they want to take these early church fathers but one of the things me and mike have talked about in the past is a lot of times people take these words or phrases that are used and at that time, it didn't mean the way they're implying it today. And that's what it seems right. like here with this ever virgin. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people just assume that this comes from the New Testament, that Mary remained a virgin her entire life. In reality, just like the other Marian dogmas of the Immaculate Conception and the bodily assumption, the perpetual Virginia Mary really was first reported in extra biblical literature by a work referred to as the Proto-Evangelium of James, is sometimes called the Infancy Gospel of James. And this is something that even Jimmy Aiken from Catholic Answers acknowledges. This is the first original source where it comes from. And it teaches that Mary was not just a virgin up to the time of Jesus's birth, but extended throughout her entire life. The problem is this, this Proto-Evangelium of James was written uh, during the mid to late second century it claimed to be written by james the uh, older stepbrother of jesus and of course there's a lot of problems with this because for one it's an apocryphal text second of all even if jesus's brothers were older stepbrothers he would have long since been dead if you do the math he would have died sometime in the first century and this is being written like second to late um second century so you have a problem with that and there's other problems with the text itself mm -hmm. yeah so as we get into this, why, or before we get into this, let me ask you this as well, as why this would be important. Because now, obviously, you had a debate with Trent Horn from Catholic Answers. Maybe in a scholarly level, people would say, yeah, of course, we would want to debate this. We want to have these types of conversations. But just even from a lay level, or people like myself and, and Mike, why would this be important? Because personally, for me, lately, we do a lot of evangelism, but lately I haven't ran into too many Catholics in conversation, but I do when I'm able to get to the college campuses, there's a lot of Catholics that want to come up and talk to you. And so why then would this be an important for even just the lay people to understand as well as those who are maybe getting into the scholarly, scholarly debate of it? Right. The reason why this is important is because if this was just some sort of aberrant uh, dogma or belief that was optional for the Catholic to believe, in other words, to say, uh, this is something that the Catholic Church teaches, but it's, hi, Justice, <laughs> uh, 
if it was just something that they taught, but it was not binding, it wouldn't be as big of a deal. But this is something that if you reject it, along with the other Marian dogmas, you, you're accursed. You are excommunicated. And the Apostle Paul stated in Galatians chapter 1 that if someone preaches a different gospel, which is not even a gospel at all, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. It's the exact same word. So they're putting it at the same level as rejecting the gospel itself. You know, so if you again, if it was just a regular belief, you know, that wasn't binding, it wouldn't be as much of an issue, but it becomes an authority issue, the authority of scripture that does not teach this and even contradicts it compared to the authority of the Pope and the magisterium that asserts that this is a belief that is just as binding as Jesus being the son of God, uh, God, in the flesh and part of the Trinity. Yeah. And even. I would say, too, for many Catholics who are not um, that are practicing Catholics, Catholics who seem to be going week after week. Some of them aren't even familiar with these anathemas because some of the, them whom I've talked to who are, like I said, consistent in going to church on a regular basis, they don't seem to want to anathematize me for yeah. denying these things. And I think it comes down to the fact that they don't really recognize sometimes that this is what their own church teaches. And <clears throat> as we were going through a, a teaching at our church at Brunswick Community, and we were going through world religions, and we talked about Roman Catholicism, we talked about Islam, we talked about Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons. And the one thing that I kept trying to emphasize was the fact that we as Christians don't like to be miscategorized or, mis, or, or be misrepresented in what we believe. So when we're talking with Roman Catholics or anyone else, we want to do our best to try to represent them properly. And right. if it is a misinformed Roman Catholic, someone who's maybe not familiar, being able to point them and say, but, but this is what your doctrine is teaching. These are the, these dogmas that, as you say, in these councils, they anathematize me as a Protestant. Right. So it's not just, a, well, we're all, we're all just another dis different uh, denomination or, yes, we're the one true church, but we still recognize you as brothers, but right. not according to your canons, not according to your your uh, councils and your teachings. Right. And that brings up a much uh, bigger issue. And I'm glad that you brought that up for because um, we tend when Catholics actually tend to look at Protestants, they tend to look at us uh, through a post Vatican II lens. If you notice, we're sometimes called separated brethren or just they'll say well, you're brothers in Christ, you're Christians too. But if you were go to go all the way back to Vatican I and the Council of uh, Florence, I believe, or it might have been the Council of Constance, one of the two, but it actually stated that um, that Protestants were schismatics and heretics. That's in Vatican I. And again, yeah, in the Council of Florence, it says that heretics and schismatics cannot share an eternal life. You know, so we went from being schismatics and heretics who are eternally damned because we're not part of, in, we're not in communion with the Roman Catholic Church to being separated brethren. We can still make it into heaven. And I brought this up during my debate with Trent, and I brought up this book by R.C. Sproul. It says, Are We Together? A Protestant Analyzes the Roman Catholicism, and the late R.C. Sproul actually goes into a great detail about this, and it seems like the only uh, Protestants who can't really make it into heaven and are anathematized permanently um, based on the Council of Trent are those who affirm sola fide and those who have actively left the church and basically know what they're doing. Because at the Council of Trent in the 16th century, it says anybody who affirms sola fide, which means you're justified by faith alone, 
um, you're 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 cursed. So again, it's it's putting the Marian dogmas and rejecting them with an anathema attached to them at the same level as the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. So it's vitally important for us because sometimes, like I said, sometimes our Catholic friends aren't aware of this. And so we can point these out and build on those conversations from that. You know, right. And that's what we want to do. And we want to do it in respect and grace and in humility with one another because we want to reach them with the true gospel. So that's why it's vitally important. Now, what we're going to do here tonight, um, Steve has been studying this. Like I said, he's just debated. Uh, he's well-versed in this. So we're going to kind of turn this over to him to kind of lead us in the discussion in the way that he wants to take this. Um, and so, Steve, go ahead and start us off as we get into this perpetual virginity of Mary. Sure. Uh, well, one of the issues that comes up is, uh, according to the dogma, there's absolutely no way that these brothers and sisters of Christ who are mentioned, and mentioned by name, by the way, in Scripture, can be um, uh, biological uh, brothers and sisters of Jesus. They could be relatives, they could be older stepbrothers, they can be cousins or whatever, but it's absolutely cannot be younger half-siblings of Jesus. And one thing that I, that I always wondered about is if... Uh, Roman Catholicism is, is they're so certain uh, about who the brothers and sisters of Christ are not. Shouldn't they be equally certain as far as who they are because they're mentioned by name? And the passage that's um, often quoted, you know, that talks about it is from Mark chapter six, verse three from four. Um, it's uh, page one, even though we don't have it marked, you know, on the on the, the outline that I gave you. It's it's point number three. It's, it's from Mark chapter 6, verse 3 to 4, where, where an unbelieving Jew is saying, is this not, is not this the carpenter or the carpenter's son? Because that's how Matthew describes it. Is not this the carpenter's son, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense to him, and Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Now, one of the things I brought up in the debate was Trent uh, Horn, that's who I debated from Catholic Answers, he jumped on the fact that the Greek word from, for brothers, which is adelphoi in Greek, uh, can mean a, a number of things. It doesn't just mean a biological brother. It can refer to stepbrother. It can refer to cousin. It can refer to kinsmen. You know, it, it can refer to believers in Christ, and it's used that way in the Old Testament as well. And that's why I jumped on the the Greek word adelphē for sisters because it's used a lot less in the New Testament. And every time it is used in the New Testament, one hundred percent without question, it is always used to describe either a a biological sister or a believer in Christ. For example, if we were to go to Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35, it says that uh, Jesus's mother, which is Mary, his biological mother, and his brothers were on the outside wanting to talk to him. And Jesus responds by saying, well, who are my mother and brothers? Those who do the will of God are my mother and brothers and sisters. And he points to his disciples who are in the inside. So he's making a distinction between those who do the will of God versus those who don't. And the point that he's trying to make here is just because somebody is my family, just because Mary is my biological mother, just because um, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas are my biological uh, brothers, that doesn't make them my family. My family are those who do the will of God. These are my spiritual family. And John picks up on this later on in his gospel when Jesus is at the cross and he says, uh, son, behold your mother. 
And he's referencing back to Mark chapter 3 when he says, Behold my mother and my brothers and my sisters. And the word for behold simply means, look, this is who my true family actually is. And one of the things I noticed, too, is when you look at the names of the brothers, one of them is named Joseph. And even though names like G Jesus and James and Mary and Joseph and the rest are, were very common names in, in Israel in the first century, it was very common to name a uh, a child after the father. For example, in Luke's gospel, when uh, Zechariah has John the Baptist, um, the angel uh, tells him that you're going to name him John. And this really came as a surprise to his family because we read that they had wanted to name his son after Zechariah because that was very common to do. And he goes, no, you're going to end up naming him John. And so I thought to myself, well, one of these brothers, you know, that's listed here is Joseph. So he was actually named after his father. Now, there are disciples who are named James there are just, and named uh, Simon and uh, named Judas. But there's none of the 12 are named Joseph. You know, so mm -hmm. obviously they're not talking about the disciples. And if we go to John chapter 2, when after the uh, wedding of Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine, he makes a distinction between Jesus' brothers and Jesus' disciples. He says they came down from Capernaum, or Jesus came down from Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. So he makes a distinction there. And throughout right. the New Testament, you see this distinction between Jesus' brothers and his disciples and his relatives. And there's different Greek words that, that the New Testament writers could have used to refer to someone other than biological, but they chose the word brothers and they chose the word sisters instead. Yeah. Yeah. And that's very, very interesting to look at it and dig into that because that is, like you said, this is one of the arguments that is often thrown out there is that Mary being ever virgin in their understanding of it did not have any other biological children. Right. Right. And but that when we look at scripture is not the case. That is not what we see. We see that she is a virgin up until the point of when she has Christ. And then after that, her and Joseph do come together and they have children. Uh, and the scriptures tell us that. And so, uh, yeah, go ahead, brother. Unless you have anything, Mike, to add to that or questions. Yeah, uh, jump on here anytime, Mike. <clears throat> yeah, sorry. I was just kind of looking at Mark 3. You know, noticing you have all, I think you mentioned it. It says the son of Mary and the brothers and so this repetitive Kai, Kai, right. Kai, which can mean but in some situations, but here I think is rightly and within this. And then it goes, you know, and your Aldafe, so the, the feminine, you know, you have that sister, the, the Greek is clear on this. You can see that. But then even in verse four, you have in the SV, it renders as relatives this sunagenoin, which then is this idea of close relative clan, you know, this kind of relative um, aspect. So, yeah, like you read this and I, I guess the natural reading would say, well, these are his brothers and his sisters. Like this is what is being said. And so I think you have to start in one way, like the devil questioning, is this what God really said? Which I is maybe a little harsh 
um, to the Catholics, but that's at least from kind of looking at it, that seems like what's going on here that you have to kind of change how we understand the scripture to match what you're believing instead of letting scripture inform your belief. Exactly. Exactly. Or as Trent Horn stated in his debate against James White, uh, that we have to allow our theology to come from the Bible, not the Bible uh, from our theology, which is ironically a sola scripture, a comment that I brought up during the debate. But Mike, I'm glad that you brought up about the Kai issue, because now we're really getting into the Greek. Um, when we, you take a look at uh, Mark chapter six, where it talks about Jesus's brothers and sisters, and that he was the son of Mary, and you take a look at the parallel passage in Matthew's gospel, which is Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 to 56, we have um, uh synoptic gospels uh, for a reason because one is going to reveal something a little clearer than the other one is but they don't contradict they actually complement each other and for one thing it says in matthew's gospel it actually refers to jesus as being the son of joseph or or the carpenter's son and it, and then in mark it says uh, that uh, he is the son of Mary. Now, during my debate against Trent, Trent was trying to argue that when someone is referred to being as the son of their mother, it's a matriarchal title, and it and it implies that they are an only child, um, because this is a way that it, it, it was used in, in ancient texts. The problem with that is if you look at the passage and you compare those two together, when, it's, when Jesus is referred to as the son of the carpenter and the son of Mary, all it's doing is saying this unbelieving Jew is questioning um, who Jesus actually is and how he got these powers and abilities because he's saying he's he's the son of these two human beings. You know how how is how is he getting these um, get this get these abilities from? So that's all that's being said there. And regarding the Greek word for Kai, in English we only have one Greek word for ant and and but there's multiple greek words uh for the word and there's kai there's day and depending on the context it means something different and i like to use this analogy if i were to say i'm going to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich i'm not saying i'm having two sandwiches i'm having one sandwich that has peanut butter and jelly in it and if i was speaking greek i would use the word kai but if I were to say I'm having a peanut butter sandwich and a jelly sandwich, I would use the Greek word day because they're two separate sandwiches. And so when Jesus or when Mark, Matthew and Mark are saying uh, that this is these are the brothers of Jesus, James and um, Judas and, and the rest and his sisters, he's using the word Kai. So whoever his sisters are, are also the same type of people. In relationship as his brothers and as i had mentioned in the new testament whenever the word for sisters is used it either refers to a believing sister or it refers to um, a biological sister and this is how it's used in the old testament in what's called the septuagint the greek translation of the old testament 100 percent of the time that this word uh, uh, adelphe for sister is used it's used the same way such as the sister nations of israel and judah it uses the greek word adelphe meaning these two nations even though they are separated they uh, both believed in the one true god of the old testament so it's using it in a believing sense like a believing sister nations so since the brothers and sisters in mark chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 13 are 
uh, unbelieving but biological sisters, they are the same type of relationship that uh, his brothers are in the same passage. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. If you want to continue, go ahead and... Uh... Okay. I just want to give a break just in case either you or Mike wanted yep. to jump in or, or there was something that you said that you wanted to kind of share, but yeah, I can, I can keep talking. I'm a, yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll I'm jump a, in there when there's something that we want to want to throw out, but yeah, I want to, I want to keep it rolling with you because okay. uh, I know there's a lot here and yeah. um, it, it's going to be very helpful. Right. And uh, the, the, we, we had mentioned about um, kind of alluded to the prophecy of the old Testament in Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, when it talks, it says that a virgin will bear a son and, and you'll be called Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Matthew talks about this in you know, the first chapter. Well, um, the thing is, a, a lot of people will say, well, it doesn't indicate what happens after the birth. But if we if we take that prophecy to mean what it means and don't add anything to it, all it's saying is that the virgin or the young maiden, because back in biblical times, if you were a young maiden, you were a virgin, they're synonymous. All it's saying is that this young maiden or this virgin was to be a virgin up to the time that she would give birth. There's nothing in the passage that says that she's going to continue being a virgin afterwards. Um, and Matthew is drawing on this you know, in uh, um chapter 1 verse 25 when he says joseph kept mary a virgin until she gave birth to a son now the specific greek words for until is heos who uh dr eric svensson uh, uh did a uh, i think his dissertation on it years ago and one thing he found is that 100 percent of the time that this specific greek phrase heos who is used in the new testament it always refers to a change of activity meaning something changes once once a particular event ends and i had actually printed this out and i actually um uh read uh i think off of it on my website and it's 17 times in five different books of the new testament that the word heos who is used and every time it's used, it means one that once um, an, act, an event ends, the activity ends. And in this case, um, it means that Joseph kept Mary a virgin up to the time that she gave birth to Jesus, but not afterwards. Once she gave birth to Jesus, you know, then her virginity ended. And right. that's because when they were first engaged or betrothed the betrothal period is a little different than an engagement um it means that they were a, a jewish um man and woman were legally married their, their marriage was binding but it was during a period of time where no sexual activity would take place you know and so uh there was no activity that was sexual activity that was happening but once she gave birth to jesus um then there's nothing in the prophecy and there's nothing in, in the Bible that even implies that she became a, um, that she remained a virgin her entire life. Now, some people try to point out Acts chapter 25, verse 24, when it says, but when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, Festus ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. And they're saying, okay, see, he was still in custody. And it uses the Greek word heos who. The problem with that is that if you actually look at the surrounding context of the passage, all Paul, all it's saying is that Paul was under the custody of Festus during that time. But then once he left Festus, he left his jurisdiction and is now under the jurisdiction of the emperor he was under the jurisdiction of caesar he was still kept in 
in bonds and in chains, but he was under a, a different custody, a different mm -hmm. jurisdiction of the emperor as opposed to Festus. So even in that passage, it means that the activity ends you know, after a certain event. And what's interesting is that the NAB, I have like an old version of it here. It's actually a Catholic translation, not to be confused with the New American Standard Bible, which is Protestant. Even in the New American Bible, it that's says, a good point, too, because I know that could be easily misunderstood. You're looking for an NASB and you say New American Bible. There it is. And yeah, that's a difference. Yep, that's a big difference. I wanted to show the difference. So it's not New American Standard; it's New American Bible, and it and it was the the Bible of, of um, American Catholics back like in the seventies. And even in that, it says that the footnotes to Matthew one twenty five. It says, "quote The Greek word translated until when it says Joseph kept Mary a virgin until she gave birth to the son, until does not exclude normal marital conduct after Jesus's birth, and." Mm -hmm. it, and it goes on to say that the evangelist is merely concerned to emphasize that Joseph was not responsible for the conception of Jesus, which is why Matthew stresses the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. You know, so we even have footnotes from the from from authorized Catholic translations of the Bible that says you can't use this verse in order to support the perpetual virginity of Mary because the Greek word for until does not support it. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, um, uh, one of the other, I, 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 whenever I, whenever I examine certain beliefs of Catholicism, because for those of your listeners who don't know, I was raised in a very devout Catholic home. I mean, I gave, I grew up in a loving home. My, um, deconversion, so to speak, away from Catholicism wasn't because of anything bad. It was simply theological. I began to study scripture and I began to realize to be deep into scripture is, is really to cease to be Roman Catholic because I retain some of the things that we share, like the belief in the deity of Christ and the Trinity and the atonement and the second coming and the, and the rising from the dead. But the things that are traditionally um, different that, that Catholics and Protestants disagree on. As I began to study scripture, I started realizing that Protestant views about salvation and the Marian dogmas, you know, were correct as I began to study. And there's a, um, there was an individual, he was a, he was a Roman Catholic Cardinal, uh, Cardinal Newman. And he had this popular phrase to say, to be deep into history is to cease to be Protestant. Well, as I mentioned during the debate, I actually had the opposite effect. And I actually started studying prior to the fourth century, and I started realizing that even the Marian dogmas were things that the early church didn't believe. For example, Irenaeus, who just recently was um, made a doctor of the church by Pope Francis. And for those who don't know the difference, is a doctor of church is somebody who has contributed something uh, to the faith that is very significant to help help advance it. So he's more than just an early church father. He's more than just a canonized saint. He's someone that's very significant. And even he affirmed um, and denied the perpetual virginity of Mary because he ends up using a term to compare Mary to the soil that um, God used to form Adam. He says that that the 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 soil was untilled and as yet virgin, and then he compares that to Mary as being as yet virgin. So just as the soil ceased to be virgin once it was tilled by God to create Adam. Likewise, when um, once Jesus was born, then 
Mary ceased to be virgin as well. She 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 became tilled essentially by Joseph. I don't know if you see that uh, question there. Okay. I'm, yeah. Did you want to read? You so, want me to read? It? Yeah. Let's ahead, read Mike. it out. We'll read it out for our audio mm-hmm. listeners later on. They might be wondering, like, huh? What's this question? So it says. I'm curious from like a systematic perspective, why the perpetual virginity of Mary is so important to Catholic theology. Is it tied to her veneration and intercession? Yeah. A very good question, Catherine. I'm glad you asked that. I mean, and you have to realize that all of the uh, Marian dogmas are all tied together. It all goes back to uh, Mary being referred to as uh, Theotokos or mother of God. And originally that title was actually a Christological title. It wasn't actually something that was meant to be applied to Mary. And what it was is that in the early church, they were fighting something called Arianism. It was a, it was a heretical group that believed that Jesus was not God. And this is where the, uh, the uh, first ecumenical council of Nicaea came from and where we get the Nicene Creed from. And then the, um, and then uh, they had to deal with the deity of the Holy Spirit, which came at the Second Ecumenical Council um, of uh, Constantinople in the, in the same century. But what ended up happening over time is, in addition to fighting these heresies, um, there was more and more focus that uh, began to be put on Mary as opposed to Christ. And a lot of these beliefs and dogmas about Mary originated from apocryphal texts. They, um, like, including the Immaculate Assumption and or the Immaculate Conception and the, and the Assumption of Mary, um, came from like the um, Ascension of Isaiah and the Odes of Solomon and um, Pseudo Melito and a, a bunch of others. And again, the Proto Evangelium James is a false gospel, and this is where it comes from. So over time, uh, there was much more. Um, adoration and veneration towards Mary. And we could uh, go off on a tangent, talk the difference between simply serving versus ver- versus uh, worshiping Mary, Julia versus Latria, which are Latin, you know, which we go down a rabbit hole, but only thing I can tell you, theologically, there's no difference between the words when they're, when they're used in the Hebrew and Greek version of the Bible. Former Catholic, yeah, me too, brother. <laughs> yeah, so, and again, my... My uh, conversion uh, to Protestantism had nothing to do with anything bad with Roman Catholicism. But we have to um, be careful because um, over time, a lot of um, things about Mary slowly be uh, in terms of or actually a lot of terms about the Trinity became terms for Mary as well. And and I wrote this out a while ago. There's a lot of official and unofficial titles. that Mary actually shares with all three persons of the Trinity. And these includes doctors of the church like St. Alphonsus Liguria and others like St. Bernard, St. Bonaventure, St. Germanus, and St. St. Bridget. So, and, and these are things that I didn't have time to bring up in the debate. But just to give you a real quick breakdown, both God the Father and, the, and Mary are referred to as the glory of Israel. Uh, the, fathers mm-hmm. are, the Father is referred to as the Lord of hosts, Mary as a queen of angels. The Holy Spirit and Mary are both referred to as helpers. Um, Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom of the church. Mary is the spouse of the Holy Spirit and the mother of the church, which if you actually think about this theologically, this makes Jesus the grandson of God the Father. You know, so it's like here's an idea where something is, uh, you know, is being expressed and it's not really thought out very well. Uh, Mediator, mediatrix, prince or god of peace, queen of peace conceived of the Holy Spirit, immaculately conceived, Son of God, Mother of God, suffered on Calvary's cross, suffered at Calvary's cross, 
bodily ascended into heaven, bodily assumed into glory, king of heaven, queen of heaven, source of grace, channel of all grace, our hope and joy, cause of our joy, redeemer, co-redeemer, last Adam, second Eve, the apostle and high priest, queen of the apostles, savior of sinners, refuge of sinners, and they're both called referred to as being born without sin, committed no sin, advocate, our hope, the way, they're both referred to as doors, the gate of heaven, and even all-powerful and omnipotent. And, and these are terms that are actually used by doctors of the church, which they become doctors by the approval of the Pope and the magisterium. Wow. Yeah, so that, this is why it's really important. The other thing I brought up during the debate, too, is the word veneration. And... Um, Catholics will say, well, we don't actually worship Mary. And if you talk with an average Catholic, you know, I, I believe they don't actually sit there and they worship and do sacrifices and everything else. So what's usually I try to usually um, communicate to them is the specific word veneration. If you have a Darby translation of the Bible, which is an older Bible, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it uses a specific Greek word, sabasma, and you can look it up in any Greek concordance or lexicon. And it literally means to worship images or statues or idols. And it's used in 2 Thessalonians to refer to the time when the Antichrist um, will command people not just to worship him, but also to worship his image. And it's the same Greek word. And it's the same Greek word is used back in the book of Acts when Paul is in Athens and he sees that they're actually worshiping and they're, they're venerating these images. He uses the same word, sabasma, and they're even worshiping this um, the statue that doesn't have a, a god on it, and so he uses the um, uses it as an as an opportunity to say, well, the god that you don't know is the only true god, and that's Jesus Christ. And and the the word for worship is the word sabasma, and it can be translated veneration. Mm. So the only person that you we really should be venerating is, is God Himself or or Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah, that's like you said, a lot of times some Roman Catholics that you you talk to, they're not seeking out to say, yes, we worship. But because many of them have such a high view of Mary and this veneration of her, it leads many into an idolatrous view of right. of Mary. And, and that's why, again, this is a very important conversation, because while on the lay level, there may be some that really don't know the, and understand these doctrines, but this can build conversations uh, with them that they you can point these things out and say, well, look, this is what you're teaching. This is what we're seeing from scripture. And we ultimately want to be in line with the word of God. Now that can come, come into some more different conversations because they would hold scripture on par with tradition right. and the magisterium. Excuse me. <laughs> All right, so if you want to go ahead and continue on, um, I mean, yeah, or Mike, go, go ahead. ahead. Mike, yeah. jump in there. I think too, when we think about kind of this idea of veneration, you can call it something different, but if it looks like worship, and there should be a cause to consider. And I mean, I drive by every time I take my kids. Or most of the time when I take my kids to daycare, I drive by a rosary maker, a factory. Um, when I drive by, there's not that I condone images of Jesus or accept engineers like images of Jesus. I condone it. 
but there isn't an image in front of their building. It's a, it's a statue of Mary. And even if we were to worship images, we're not called to do that. Wouldn't the image of Jesus be something better to put out there? Why is it Mary? And when I, when I think about these things and, and part of this is understanding that we pray for Mary so she can pass on our prayers to Jesus. Cause it's what son can resist her, her mother, his mother. Sorry for the slip there. Um, kind of in one way contradicts what we see of what God does. God's work in the Bible from Genesis three to Revelation 21 is getting closer to his people, not farther away. Good point. God wants to be with us. In fact, so much so that in the New Testament, he no longer dwells in a building in which we are to go and see. He dwells in the believer. Right. Right. And I think so. Another reason as you talk about why this is important is it's important within how we understand how God helps us his not only his transcendence that he is above us he is the creator he is not bound by time and yet he's also near us he's with us and as believers he dwells within us and the nearness and I think there is this kind of aspect of going back to the old testament got as far you have to do things you have to offer your sacrifices you have to go into the tent of in the holy place and you have to prepare yourself to go into the most holy place lest you die when that's not the tenor of worship of the new testament and that god is getting closer to his peoples he didn't have a tent to dwell he was far off he's now come close together in the tent and the tabernacle. And now he has come closer to us with his spirit until he comes again. And we get to dwell in his presence and to and see the human of Jesus. I think this is also key on kind of how Miriam dogma has changed how we think of the closeness of God to us. Not that Catholics would deny that. Right. You know, and I'm glad you brought up about the curtain because a lot of people are wondering when Jesus died, the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And it wasn't just like this flimsy little curtain that you might put up over your drapes mm -hmm. or something. I mean, this was something that was thick. Some people said it was anywhere between three to six inches thick. So this is something that would require a lot for it to tear. And the reason why that curtain was up there for was to separate the people from the, the Holy of Holies area, which is where the Shekinah glory of God um, was at. And like Mike had mentioned, it allows us to get closer to God, that there wasn't, there's not this boundary anymore because Jesus's um, shed blood and death on the cross was sufficient in order to reconcile us to God, which as the writer of Hebrews says that we can go before the throne of God with confidence, you know, and, and take our prayers to him. The other thing too is uh, we touched a little bit about this in the debate about the 
a false typology of Mary being the new ark and that, you know, that she's it, she's typified by the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant. I, in my, on my YouTube channel, Born Again RN, I have a video about why those typologies are false for and, and where they fail because they're drawn heavily from Second um, Samuel chapter six, and I explain, you know, why they're they're not good analogies that are there. But when you think about it, if the if Mary is supposed to be in the new ark, is supposed to be the new ark, and uh, a person goes to Mary because Jesus is kind of um, indifferent or, or kind of hard you know and so we can't go directly to jesus we go to his mother and she kind of softens mary up or softens jesus up a little bit you know and so she takes our prayers to him then you have a bigger problem because you got the ark in the wrong place because in catholic theology you, you take your prayers to mary mary takes them to jesus jesus takes them uh, to god to be to be answered but in but we have to remember that Jesus is referred to as our high priest because it was the high priest who went into the temple and went into the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant, you know, what is. So you have the the um, the high priest going into the Holy Holies where the the um, Ark of the Covenant is, which the Shekinah glory of God, you know, hovers above. Um, so you have the Ark being between the high priest and God the Father, but in Catholic theology, you've got um, Mary the New Ark being between the high priest and the sinner. So it, it, it doesn't work. And the whole purpose of the um, Ark of the Covenant had nothing to do with Mary or the contents on the inside or anything. It had more to do with what was on top of the Ark, which was the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat, they would shed an innocent um, um, lack of blemish lamb and they would shed his blood and sprinkle it on the wood on top of the ark of the covenant which is a picture of the the death and the atonement of jesus when he died on the cross okay yeah. great Amen. go ahead someone will read that or so yeah uh, catherine miller yeah. who i know said great point it's an implication of a mischaracterization of Christ's heart. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Amen. Amen to that. But um, to kind of get back on point as far as we're, what we were talking about, as far as the text not supporting uh, the perpetual virginity of Mary, in Matthew 1.18, it says, before they, referring to Joseph and Mary, before they came together, um, she was to be found with child. Well, the Greek word for before means formally or, or formal to an event. And the word came together, uh, one of the meanings is conjugal, cohabitation it's the same greek word that's used in first corinthians 7 5 when uh joe's or when the apostle paul tells mary couples couples to stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so satan doesn't tempt you because you're a lack of self-control and the context of coming together here means there may be a period of time where a married couple may decide not to have sexual activity in order to focus their attention on god and serving them but it's only meant to be temporary um some catholics will try to use this example well you know mary and joseph you know they made this vow to be in order to remain um uh not uh a conjugal throughout their entire marriage but that's not what the text says it's, it says except by agreement for a time but then he commands them to get back together and when paul goes on to say that this is a concession what he's talking about is that um he's not commanding people to be married he says he sees the benefits of marriage and he sees the benefits as a single person himself so the concession was was not 
saying that he wasn't commanding people to be married. Um, uh, or actually, his concession was that he wasn't commanding people to be married. But if you are going to be married, you're not supposed to deprive one another and that would include mary and joseph because they were believing jews and christians so mary would not have deprived joseph because her body is not her own likewise joseph's body doesn't belong to him they belong to each other because um it, if you go all the way back to genesis it it says that god commanded married couples to be fruitful and to multiply and as a believing jew mary and joseph would not have disobeyed god with that um, the next point is the word firstborn. Um, the first word firstborn has multiple meanings. It comes from the Greek word prototokos, and it means preeminent, like Jesus being the firstborn. It doesn't mean that um, uh, Jesus, um, you know, was the first, that he was a created being, because Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons will try to use this. It simply means preeminent when it says firstborn among creation. It also can refer to firstborn out of the womb, like when a, uh, a firstborn child were to open the womb, you would, you would take them before um, the temple and, and consecrate that firstborn to God. But it also can refer to firstborn among other siblings, and it's used this way in both the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Genesis 35, it says, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon, indicating firstborn means not just that he was the firstborn to open the womb, but that he had other children. In Deuteronomy 21, if a man has two wives and they both uh, have sons, he talks about the firstborn. And so if there's a firstborn and he has sons, that means there's at least a secondborn. In Joshua 6, it talks about a firstborn and a youngest son. So if there's a youngest son, there must be an older son, which is the firstborn. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, it says the sons of David who were born to him, the firstborn was Ammon, and the second or secondborn was Daniel. And it's even used this way, I think, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, when it talks about the firstborn um, of, of Egypt, you know, that that uh, fell under the under the plagues. So, and some people say, well, firstborn, it doesn't necessarily mean that, and, and it doesn't exclude um, an only child. Well, in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 7, it refers to Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. Now, what's interesting about Luke's gospel is he uses another Greek word, monogamous. And it literally translated only begotten. So firstborn, only begotten, two different Greek words. And he uses the word only begotten to refer to an only child in passages like Luke chapter 7, verse 12, chapter 8, verse 42, and chapter 9, verse 38. And we're all familiar with John three sixteen. So God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. So whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He's the, he's the firstborn, meaning he's the only begotten son of God. He doesn't have spiritual brothers and sisters the way the Mormons believe that Lucifer was a spirit brother of Jesus. You know, so right. that's not what that, that means. Um, now, some people might object and say, well, what about Luke chapter 2, verse 23, when it says that, that Mary brought Jesus to the temple, and, and it quotes the Old Testament where it says, every firstborn male who opens womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Well, if you look in a Greek lexicon, the Greek word for firstborn is not there. It's in, it's in some translations of the Bible, it's italicized, which means it was not part of the original Greek. So it simply means every male who opens the womb, and, that, and that's all it's talking about. It doesn't use the word firstborn. Jesus just happened to be the firstborn to, to open the womb. But the reason why this doesn't disqualify Mary giving birth to her firstborn in back in verse 7 
to mean firstborn among um, other siblings is because these are two different events. In verse 7, seven it's simply talking about who Jesus was in relation to Mary. And in verse 23, the, it's a completely different situation, an event where it shifts up to talk about her taking um, Jesus to the temple. Um, the, the, the other one, and this, this is the one that really got me, you know, when I was actually studying this. Psalm chapter 69, verse 8, where it says, I have become estranged from my mother, brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. And I heard for a long time that this actually referred to um, King David, and it doesn't refer to Jesus. Okay, what's this comment here uh, by GP? GP is saying, I've spent a lot of time researching Roman Catholicism. As my wife is a former Catholic, these man-made doctrines are weird. Yeah, well, when you truly believe in something and when you are devoted to a religion, you have to realize this is no different than Jehovah's Witnesses that are devoted to the Watchtower or Mormons who are devoted to the writings of Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. And with Roman Catholicism, you have to realize these dogmas go way far back. You know, one of the things that people will say is, well, the Immaculate Conception and the bodily assumption, that didn't take place until the 18th or the 19th and 20th century, the rather late. We have to understand that people believed in these dogmas way far back. We can go back as early as the first millennium, the first thousand years. And for the perpetual Virginia Mary, it goes back even further than that. We can we can find people in the early church who believed in, in these dogmas, but we can also find people who didn't believe in these dogmas. I brought up Irenaeus, a doctor of the church. Hegesibus, who, who lived in the second century, who was a contemporary of Irenaeus, did not believe in it. Helvidius, who was a contemporary of Jerome in the fourth century did not believe in it. And even Tertullian, who Catholics don't recognize as an early church father, but even EWTN has stated that um, when it comes to the orthodoxy of the virgin birth, um, he was nobody was on par with him. I mean, he, he, he was orthodox in the virgin birth, and Tertullian did not believe in any of these Marian dogmas, including the perpetual virginity of Mary. But getting back to uh, Psalm 69, were you someone going to say something or no? Okay. I was just going to add on to that same thing real quickly is that uh, I think we've had this conversation as well on G220 radio and with our, our former co-host and friend, George Alvarado many times is that when a lot of these people quote these early church fathers, you can find early church fathers in the same time period that again may say something different than the one you're quoting. So right. you do have to keep that in mind. And as we mentioned already earlier, is also what they're saying, we need to understand it in the context and how they were saying it and how it was being used in that time frame. That's right. also one of those things that kind of leads people to believe things or take things further than actually how it was originally intended to mean. Now, we are at 10 o'clock right now. Our shows usually go an hour, but we can take this a little bit longer. If Steve, if you're okay with that, if staying a little longer and continuing to go. Yeah, Ricky, Mike, I am a night shift worker, so I am a night <laughs> owl. So I keep going. Anytime you guys, if you can't keep up, then I perfectly understand that. No, just kidding. Um, I, I can go as long as you want to, but if you want to say we're going to cut it quit so we can you know, get questions or whatever, that's fine with me. So, Well, we'll, we'll, we'll take it to no later than 1030 for okay. the sake of everybody here to, you know, those of us who will are not night owls, um, but, uh, uh, and also for the yeah. listeners, if they have any questions, start getting those in and maybe like the next right. 10, 15 minutes, and then we'll, we'll take some of those as well. 
Yeah, I, I really want, want to focus, if anything else, on, on Psalm 69 because of the wording, I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's son. The reason that this is significant for is because the very next verse in in is a prophecy that was fulfilled in Jesus in John chapter 2 when he says, For zeal for your house has consumed me. And it's fulfilled in John chapter 2 verse 27. And it directly quotes um, Psalm 69 verse 9 and says that this is about Jesus. The reason why we know the previous verse, verse 8, where it says, I become estranged from my brothers and aliens from my mother's sons, is because in verse 9, it begins with the word for. And the word for in Hebrew is a conjunction. And it can mean because, since, or therefore. So what the writer, what the psalmist is, is doing is that he's saying what's taking place in verse 8 is also is continuing into verse 9. It's the same thought. So the same Messiah who experienced zeal for your house, which was Jesus, is the same Messiah um, who experienced estrangement from his brothers and from his mother's sons. And we know this is talking about his literal mother, Mary, which Jesus' mother, Mary, and his literal brothers, because the same phrase is used earlier in Deuteronomy 13, 6, when it talks about your brother, your mother's son. And, it, and there it's meant to be taken literally as well, because some um, Catholics have tried to allegorize or spiritualize um, Psalm 69, verse 8, when it says that. And it's, and it's not meant to be allegorized because the passage um, doesn't even imply it. It has to be read into it. This is something referred to as eisegesis, where you're taking a preconceived religious belief and trying to read it into the text, as opposed to exegesis, which means you allow the text to speak for itself. You know, And that's why it's, it's so important for it. So what the psalmist is saying is that the Messiah is going to have brothers who are his literal mother's sons, uh, who are going to be estranged from them. And if we go to John chapter 7, it says that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. And in Mark chapter 3, you know, it's, he makes a distinction between his, his disciples, who are his genuine brothers in Christ, who do the will of God, versus his biological brothers, who do not do the will of God. Um, and then by the time you get to Mark chapter 6, he, he makes a comment that no prophet is um, honored um, ex, a, a prophet is not honored except in um, among his relatives and among his hometown and among those that are in his household. So he's breaking it down between those in his hometown, which which would be Nazareth, and um, his his relatives in general, uh, which would be like cousins and whatever, and then those in his household. Well, who were in his household? Well, it wouldn't be Joseph. Joseph is described as being a righteous man. It wouldn't be Mary because Mary. Uh, did honor Christ. Now, Mary did uh, question Jesus, you know, on occasion, like at the um, wedding of Cana, and and even when um, yeah, he was doing other things where they they try to pull him aside. Uh, but his believing or his his brothers and sisters who were in his household were those who did not honor him. And this is significant because we go back to the word Adelphi. It wasn't just his brothers that dishonored him. It was his, his sisters. And, and the Greek word for sisters only has two meanings when it's used in the New Testament, either a biological sister or a believing sister. And you can't have an unbelieving sister. That's an oxymoron. So the only other option of who these sisters were who were in Jesus's um, household would have been his younger half-sisters who did not believe in him.
So, um, and, and this is what the prophecy from Psalm 69, verse 8 is, is talking about. Um, and the evidence against the perpetual Virginia Mary, like this is just to quickly go over, even some Raymond Brown, who is a Catholic author, uh, along with his co-author, Joseph Fitzmaier, um, from his work, Mary, their work, Mary in the New Testament says, he, he says this, he quotes this, there is no second century evidence of belief in Mary remaining a virgin after the birth of Jesus, apart from the implications of proto-evangelium, the later development of this doctrine went hand in hand with the ascetic glorification of virginity. And what that means is that very early on, there were these ascetics, you know, these are people that were saying that, that the, the body is, um, not good and and that only the spirit is good and so there's there's movements where um even married couples would would not have sexual relations with each other and they and the early church started to apply this um uh, to marry and uh you see this in mon the, the rise of uh, mon monasticism as well as other uh type of of texts um i'm trying to think if there's anything else but Again, when you take a look at all these these particular Marian dogmas, you, you find that they come from uh, the, the the development of these uh, dogmas comes from these these false texts. And like Cardinal Newman had talked about this development uh, theory, where uh, you see the seed of uh, these dogmas in the early church by individuals, and it developed into these dogmas. Well, not only does this development theory um, prove that these later developments were not part of the early church. It, I mean, so the development theory actually works against itself. Um, but you find that in the early church um, that there were a lot of people, including the, with the Immaculate Conception of Mary, that they did not actually believe in it. You know, so um, as my friend, um, my friend, the other Paul would say, about the development theory, just slap a little Newman on it and call it sacred tradition. Well, doesn't work that way. Uh, there, there, there's, there's so many things, uh, other path things we could actually get into. But the fact is that the primary meaning of the word brothers and sisters that is used in Scripture, if we take the primary meaning, which means these would have been biological brothers and six sisters of Jesus, there's no reason except for embracing a much later religious dogma to eliminate the primary meaning, you know, because we don't do this with anybody else. I brought up in the debate about uh, Andrew and Peter being brothers. And if you go on new um, advent.org, it says that um, just as Peter or just as Peter was the son of Jonah or Jonas, Likewise, Andrew was the son of Jonas. And the way that they do that is that they link the passages where Peter and Andrew are referred to as brothers at you know, Adelphos, and Peter was the son of Jonah. And so that's how they know that, that Andrew is the son of Jonah also because they were brothers. Well, why can't we do that with Jesus? Because Jesus is the son of Mary, and Jesus is also um, the the stepson of Joseph, and he has these brothers who are mentioned by name, and we know that these brothers are related to Joseph somehow, so why can't they be biological brothers? The difference between the way Catholics will exegete a text uh, versus Protestants, Protestants try to be consistent with, with the interpretation, while Catholics, if it disagrees with a 
uh, particular dogma that they have, they'll do all types of mental gymnastics in order to um, try to prove the dogma rather than allow the text to um, explain itself. And we got uh, GP here is making a, a statement here. He says, what kind of sealed it for me is the passages where Jesus refers to Mary as a woman rather than some other term of endearment or respect. Um, and Steve, you can probably speak to this as well. I know Mike and I have kind of talked about this before on another in another uh, episode of G220 Radio, is that this term here, though, is not a term of disrespect that Jesus right. is using when he says this to her. Um, and so I, you want to go ahead and, and speak to that real quick? Yeah. Um, if you notice, especially in John's Gospel, whenever Jesus refers to Mary, he always refers to his woman. I always found that curious. And like you said, it's not a disrespect. It's simply a very respectful way of distancing himself. Because at the at the wedding of Cana, um, they run out of wine when he, they're at the wedding. And so uh, Mary goes to Jesus and says they ran out of wine because she knew that Jesus could fix the problem. And he looks at her and he says, what does this have to do with us? Yeah. And he and he says, my, my time has not yet come. So in other words, what he's saying is that I do things on God's timetable, not you. But he did it in a very respectful way. And then if you notice what Mary does, he says, uh, she says, do whatever he tells you to do. And the term for woman a lot of people, some Catholics will try to tie that, you know, to mean that Mary is the woman that's in Revelation chapter 12, uh, which is in heaven, you know, and uh, they'll try to use that to support the bodily assumption of Mary, when in reality, it has to do with the nation of Israel, because John is referencing back to Genesis chapter 37, verses 9 through 10, when the same description of this woman um, is used to describe the nation of Israel. Um, but the word woman, that's all it means. It's, it's a respectful distance because he never calls her mother. And I found that really interesting. Um, Jesus never calls his mother woman. He o or never calls his mother mother. He always calls her woman. And he does this with a lot of other people in the, in the uh, New Testament as well. Mary Magdalene, when he appears to her, he calls her woman. Um, I think in... Uh, when he goes to see Lazarus and um, Mary Mag Mary... Um, and Martha, her sister, I, I believe he calls one of them woman as well. So the term woman uh, doesn't um, indicate anything particularly special about Mary, uh, just the opposite. He's, he's just referring to her and he's distancing herself because he doesn't want people to get the impression that because Mary is his biological mother, that she has any more authority for her or over the church than anybody else. But rather because she does the will of God, that's what makes, um, that's what makes her, you know, a believer and part of his family. Yeah, I think it's important to, as we've already mentioned this, and I, I want to reiterate it, is the way we sometimes take terms in our day, it and and depending on how it's said, can determine the context of what's being said. And as we've mentioned, it's not a, a term of disrespect. I always think of our friends, Mike, over at the Patriarchy Podcast, and one of their 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 um, lines and their thing is, "Woman, make me a sandwich," right? <laughs> and and so I think of that in our context today, how sometimes people may take it that way. But again, like we've been saying, in the original context of how it was being written and how it was being used, that's how you ultimately want to view scripture or early church fathers in light of how they were writing it in the context they were trying to portray that word, that meaning, rather than getting into our context of today and then trying to apply it. 
because that's how we get into all kinds of problems in, in all over the scriptures. And that's really the problem when um, you see people abandon the Protestant and actually biblical belief of sola scriptura or scripture only, because if you do not allow scripture to be your ultimate authority, meaning that it is the sole inspired and errant revelation from God to Christians for Christian doctrine and, and for morals, you can come up with all kinds of things and, and you can start with you can start with something that that's biblical and, and honest and innocent, like trying to affirm the deity of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And but then over time if if you start to go outside of what scripture teaches, you end up having Mary being Queen of Heaven and a co mediatrix and co redemptrix and all these other titles that I mentioned earlier that are supposed to be strictly uh, to describe God, not Mary. Yeah. Yep. All right. So we're got about 15 minutes left. Um, where do you want to take us as we begin to wrap this down? Um, I mean, honestly, it's like I, that's basically the bulk of it. Um, what I would encourage people to do if they want to look into this a lot more, I had a very in-depth conversation about, specifically about this dogma from, um, from my friend Jeff Robinson on his YouTube channel, A Goy for Jesus, G-O-Y. And it's about two and a half hours. So it's like if you can't swallow it all at once, just take little bites. It's like eating an elephant. One bite at a time, you'll get it. And it was really nice because what he did is he created timestamps. So if there's something you want to jump to, like the word until or whatever, you can jump right to it. So you can check this out on his YouTube channel. It's also on my YouTube channel. I created a link. Um, and if you go under my playlist under Born Again RN, under Mary, the mother of Jesus, it's with, it's one of the first videos that'll pop up. You'll actually see it. Again, it's about two and a half hours, and you can you can go to it. You can link it. You can listen to what we have to say. You know, and just and, and before you know it, you'll you'll go through the whole thing. Um, beyond that, um, just want to do a couple of plugs, if if I may, if that would be all right. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, okay. Um, it, it, you had mentioned about a couple of my books. You know that I had. Uh, had my first book is is uh, not really of us. Why do children of Christian parents abandon the faith? And what I did is I took a, a New Testament look from the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, um, when it talks about reasons why people walk away from the faith. And I um, identify the four different types of soils as four different types of children who grew up Christian and why they walk away from the faith. And it's not necessarily anything that their parents did wrong or whatever, but it, it takes a biblical approach to explain what happens. And I kind of give a top 10 list of the reasons that they give and a top 10 a biblical approach, what to do and what not to do to witness to your to your kids, you know, so, and that can be find out, found on Amazon. Um, the other one you're familiar with, you know, about uh, why Protestant Bibles are smaller, where I talk about the issue of the canon, because no matter what discussion we talk about, whether it's the papacy, whether it's the Marian dogmas or whatever, it always seems to get down to two things I notice. The issue of authority, the issue of the, the authority of the Catholic Church over the authority of Scripture alone, and how do you know um, that these that these beliefs are true because uh, you don't have the authority of uh, you don't have the true Bible. How do you know what books belong in the Bible if you don't get that from the church? And I and I explain that in the, in the, my book as well. Um, 
I also have a couple of upcoming discussions as well that I wanted to kind of plug. One is with Dr. Tony Costa out of Canada in his uh, Toronto Apologetics YouTube channel. It's going to be tomorrow, Wednesday, April 27th, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we're going to be talking about the bodily assumption of Mary, the other another uh, Marian dogma, because actually that's one that's uh, we decided to do that because that's one that we don't people don't normally talk about. They'll either talk mm -hmm. about the perpetual virginity or they'll talk about um, the, uh, the Immaculate Conception, or like Mike had mentioned about co-redemptrix or co-mediatrix, but the bodily assumption kind of gets tossed aside. Part of it is that there's no biblical or early church evidence for it, but it's something that we thought we would actually talk about and how to show that not only is there no support for it in Scripture in the early church, but that the dogma actually contradicts Scripture as well. Um, the other discussion I have coming up next month, Wednesday, May 18th, 9.30 p.m. Eastern, time is with my friend Kelly Powers from Berean Perspective Apologetics YouTube. We're just going to have a general discussion. Uh, the Marian Dogmas will probably come up, but we haven't figured out the details about that. Um, and then as far as my contact information, you know, I could send it to you. My website um, uh, is vernisage, V-E-R-N-I-S-A-G-E dot U-S backslash Steve Christie. It's got a lot of my um, Bible studies that are on there that you can actually download and for free. I mean, it doesn't cost anything. And my Facebook tags, or my tags on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube are all the same. Same. Born again RN. I'm a registered nurse, so born again RN. You can remember it that way. So th that's about it. Well, Steve, we we really do thank you for your time here tonight. And obviously, we could have continued to go for a a long time on this topic alone. Yeah. But I do want to encourage people to go check out your your YouTube channel, yeah. subscribe over there, like what he's got going on over there, and dig into those playlists. And it's going to help you, especially if you're coming out of Roman Catholicism. If you're in Roman Catholicism and you have questions about what Protestants believe about your own faith, um, go and watch those videos. And I'm sure if you got questions, leave it in the comment section there on his, his uh, YouTube channel or, or reach out to him. And Steve will... Uh, get back to you and, and interact with you, I'm sure. And um, the only thing that I got to say about Steve here is this man is in Ohio and he comes <laughs> on our show wearing a Pittsburgh Steelers shirt. <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> I was going to wait less. to the end. Yeah, Mike doesn't care at all. He's in Louisville. Um, uh -huh. But but no, I just playing. I mean, I yeah. I'm 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 near Cleveland and I'm like he's wearing a Steelers shirt. <laughs> yeah, the, I tell you what, and one of the worst things that could have possibly happened, and 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 I'm assuming you're a Browns fan. Yeah. Okay. One of the worst things that could have happened that you as a Browns fan and me as a Steelers fan would, would agree with was Art Modell about taking Pittsburgh, Cleveland, you know, the Browns away from Cleveland because that rivalry disappeared for a few years. You know, mm -hmm. and it was like that. That was such a great rivalry because the cities are so close to each other. But just yeah. really quickly to kind of share something with you, when I, um, you know, I travel to Cleveland about every three weeks because I got a doctor's appointment there, and I'm walking into the hospital where um, our good friend Pastor Buck works, and as I'm walking from the parking lot to the hospital i had my steelers jacket on it was in the winter time two people complimented me <laughs> on the steelers and then what a lot of people don't realize in cleveland there's a lot of steelers fans that had migrated you know because after the um the, the steel industry and everything they spread out all over so it was right. like so it's like i i felt very comfortable there so i so yeah. but 
but honestly, I appreciate the dig. I love it. <laughs> yeah. No, my, my grandparents actually moved down from Pennsylvania. Like you said, there's a lot of people that have come down here. You run into a lot of Pittsburgh Steelers fan here. And I, I like to make a joke. I don't take it to the extent of, oh. you know, throwing things on the field when you're at a game. And yeah, playing Pittsburgh, but um, yeah, I, I couldn't let that slide. No, as a matter of, as a matter of fact, the only person because we all all remember about the glass bottles that were thrown at the refs, and and my fr- my uh, friend Craig, he was a diehard Cleveland fan. He actually enjoyed that, and he appreciated that because he was able to get season tickets that way. Because <laughs> you know, so many people end up losing their season tickets, he's like, Thank right. You. Yeah. Opened it up for other people to enjoy it. Yeah. So no, but we really do want to thank you for coming on the program and uh, um, probably have to have you back on again at some point. And we can talk about more of the Roman Catholicism or maybe some other topics as well. And so really, really, uh, yeah, Larry says it may have hurt our ratings. You know, having <laughs> Steelers. I, so. I try to keep it down. I had. I try to keep it down like this, but yeah. it peaks up a little bit. Yeah. You know, but no, yeah. it's it's all good, but, brother. It's all good. Yeah, but honestly, just real quick, like you had mentioned, um, Ricky, we've been going for almost an hour and a half, and to be honest, we barely scratched the right. surface on this topic. I mean, out of the three dogmas, I probably did the most on this particular one, and that's why it says if you want, um, contact me, either Facebook, uh, YouTube, or Twitter, and if you have specific questions that you want answered, I'll do my best, and if I don't know, I'll say I don't know, but I'll find the answers you know, for you. Yeah. And check out his debates because this is not the first time you've debated Trent Horn. I think you've debated him two other times or one. Yeah. Two times total. Two times yeah, total. two times. I've had. Okay. I've only had three professional debates in my life. The first one was against Gary Machuda, who wrote the book "Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger." So I, mm-hmm. I wrote part of some Bibles are smaller. And he actually wanted to debate me, and we had a back-to-back debate. You know, one day and then the next day, so it was a two-day debate. I then. Um, debated Trent Horn because Trent Horn found out about my book, mentioned me at the Catholic Answers National Conference in 2019 and my book and said he wanted to discuss it with me, which turned into a debate. And then after that debate, then I contacted him about doing one on the Marian Dogmas. He goes, yeah, let's do it. So I've had two debates with him. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely want to encourage people to check those out uh, because it can be helpful for you um, to hear their answers as well as hear the Protestant side's answers to the objections that they bring. And so debates can be very useful and helpful. And like you said, if it's if it takes a long time to get through some of those, you can either take it in bits or you can do like me and speed it at two point speed. Just go through it <laughs> exactly and I, and I really appreciate you both bringing me on here because as you know with the debates it happens goes really fast and furious and you really can't get everything out especially when you're discussing not one not two but three Marian dogmas and you're trying to juggle all that together but in a format like this when we're only focused on one it's more relaxed you both are gracious to be able to allow me to talk about this in more in depth and even at that like I said it barely scratched the surface so people that got questions please contact me you know and I'll try to answer your questions the best I can. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's been G220 Radio for tonight, my friends. We will be back next week. We're going to be continuing our Proverbs chapter 14. We went through verses 1 through 17 a couple weeks ago, and we're going to be coming back and and completing that chapter out. And Matthew Ware is going to co-host with us, and he's going to talk about Proverbs, uh, the rest of that chapter with us. And so uh, Matthew Ware is a friend of ours from uh the uh, pennsylvania area up in the lancaster area so he'll be down hopefully he won't be wearing a pittsburgh Steelers shirt himself but <laughs> who knows but uh 
he'll be on with us next week to uh, talk about that. So look forward to tuning in with us next week. Make sure you like, subscribe, share, uh, and go and uh, subscribe to our friend here's uh, YouTube channel and ask him your questions because he'll give you some answers there. All right, that's been G220 Radio. Until next time, God bless. God bless you.